BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are coming off a pretty great, pretty wild uh, testimony yesterday from this uh, foreign service officer, career foreign service officer named Bill Taylor, who's who's uh, has a different title, but he's basically the acting ambassador to Ukraine at the moment. So we're going to dig into that and try to try to make sense of it. Uh, David, what are, what's what's the what's the story? What do we got going today? Yeah, uh, that's basically what we're going to get into. Kate Riga joining us as always. How are you? Good. Hello, everybody. Hello. And joining us, special guest today, Matt Shuham, one of our reporters. How are you, Matt? Hi. Good. Thanks for having me. Good. So I guess, all right, so we'll, we'll, we're going to uh, talk quickly about Grady's cold brew iced coffee uh, before we get started. Grady's, the key information now, the key news, is that Grady's is now shipping all of its liquid products nationwide. Now everyone has access to all of the products that made Grady's famous. 32-ounce bottles of New Orleans-style concentrate, 42-serving bag in a box, even single-serve bottles. Drink it straight, mix in your favorite milk, or spike it for a caffeinated cocktail. Grady's is brewed and bottled daily at their brewery in the Bronx, so bottles ship cold for peak freshness. Ready to give it a squirrel? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. All right. All right. So yesterday we had, like you said, Josh, we had Bill Taylor giving testimony. We've talked on this podcast about how his version of events was some of the most highly anticipated that we've that we've been looking forward to. I think it was, what, 10 plus hours of testimony behind closed doors. There were tweets and leaks and things like that, that there were gasps in the room and some Democrats saying, you know, it was the most kind of serious day for them in Congress so far. So I'm just curious to go around the table a little bit. Um, I don't know, what was everyone's kind of take big takeaways? One thing I was a little surprised by, I, I think it should have been the most anticipated, but in a way I feel like, wasn't Sondland's kind of like more talked about? Like, I feel like this was almost there like- There was more drama. Like sleeper testimony in a way, even though it ended up being, you know, a very, very big deal. I think, I, I don't know if I'm remembering this right, but- I, I think I actually said in a conversation on, on the podcast that you and I had, Kate, and I was clearly wrong. I thought his testimony would be less significant because he was not going to be a person directly talking with Trump, right? So so Sondland and, and Volcker and, and these people, they're like having direct FaceTime with Trump. And so they're, the, they're going to, and obviously at the end of the day, what really matters is what the president did, what the president said. Uh, so I thought that, and clearly I was wrong. And but I don't think he, at least in the at least in that prepared testimony, I don't think he did. He ever talk to Trump himself? Not in what we have. Yeah. yeah. I don't so. um, but but I guess just the combination of uh, the guy takes good notes and was at the center of the drama. That, yeah. That clearly. That was that was that was a mistake yeah. on my yeah. part. Well, I think a huge part of it too is that stuff like this is kind of as much about optics as it is anything else. And Bill Taylor comes across as someone who, you know, from what we hear, from what was inside the room, was pretty sedate, pretty matter of fact, has a, 
unimpeachable record of public service, is not political, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think that still counts for a lot in testimony like these. And also, I mean, he put pieces together that just make sense based on what we already had. It's like we had the text, but we didn't know, you know, when Sondland said, call me, we didn't know what was there. So it's like he's kind of filling in the picture that we already have all these pieces with, which I think is part, the simplicity is part of why it feels so damning because it just makes sense. It also, yeah. it also seems to me that with Volker and Sondland, that they, and and one of the key, you know, kind of funninesses of this whole thing is that we haven't seen any of the actual testimony. We see this, you know, we, we in some cases have seen the prepared statements. We get sort of leaks and stuff like that, but we haven't seen the details. And that's by design because they want to keep everybody sort of, especially the future witnesses in, in suspense. But one of the things, what seems to be the case at least, is that with Sondland and Volker, they seem to have gone in there like, I'm not going to lie. I mean, who knows? But that's at least, you know, strategically kind of the plan. I'm not going to lie, but I'm going to try to minimize my role absolutely as much as possible. So you had this kind of funny thing where Volker comes in with these texts that like are very damning and very clear and make very clear that he is not only aware of this quid pro quo and this whole scam or scheme or whatever, but he is actively participating it's very clear in the text and yet he seems to be saying i you know it was bad but i really did not see this coming and <laughs> and and uh i thought i was doing x and i don't know what to tell you so right. there's this kind of funny thing where they're they're again trying not to lie but like not really kind of coming clean and and i guess taylor you know, for him, I don't think he feels like he needs to come clean because he, I mean, I think it's worth remembering that like all this stuff happened and he didn't tell anybody. He didn't, you know, it still was for the whistleblower to actually let us all know about it. But he was, he, he seems convincing in as much as that he was never on board with this, never thought it was a good idea. And uh, either intentionally or not, you know, intentionally kind of for the for future congressional hearings was was uh, made sure to in electron, you know, electronically recorded settings say, like, I think this is a bad idea, bad idea, just letting you all know. Right. So he's in a kind of a different position. But that does seem to that does make the whole picture different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something you just said, I think Sondland here, I think that this Taylor's testimony really does shed some light on Sondland's because now you can see what a very fine line he was walking by saying, you know, I was never a part of this Biden stuff. I didn't know Biden's came up. And I think we can expect him in the future to say, to try to convince people that I knew about the investigation into Burisma. I didn't know it had anything to do with the Bidens, you know, despite the fact that Giuliani and co had been pushing this narrative for months. But, Publicly. Right. Exactly. Publicly. Like, I guess he doesn't read the papers. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I think you can tell that he was trying to walk a very difficult tightrope for someone who was clearly very involved, you know, who talked to Trump himself multiple times and only kind of got the memo to take this stuff off of a text paper trail somewhat late in the game. Right. And also to the point about um, the gaps in the testimony, I remember when I think it was the Wall Street Journal that reported on Ron Johnson talking to Sondland 
about, oh, I heard from, Johnson said he heard from Sondland that there was essentially a quid pro quo, this aid for investigations thing. And at that point, Johnson got on the phone with Trump and Trump said, oh, no. And so that was this, at the time, it seemed like an isolated incident of a discussion about a quid pro quo. And then since then, we realized it's way not. That was one instance of many, as detailed by Taylor and others, where there was an explicit exchange of uh a promise of an announcement about an investigation for this military money. So it filled in a lot of gaps. Well, there's a, there's also there's one part of the of this of the prepared remarks that was released yesterday, and I'm a little fu- maybe it was both. I'm a little fuzzy whether it was Sunlin and Trump or Sunlin and Taylor, but I think it's Sunlin and Trump where they're kind of where as you know I think Sunlin later related this to Taylor and Taylor's relating it to us, but is. Trump and Sondland kind of like we. This is definitely not a not a quid pro quo. And and Sondland's like, oh, it's definitely not. It's absolutely not a quid pro quo. We still need him to do it, or else we're not giving the weapons. Yeah, but exactly. I mean, we're clear. This is so like, it's this weird. It it for 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 people who watch Succession on HBO, it had this very Tom and Greg sort of feel to it. Like two guys who really want to be evil, but are not that bright and not. I don't know. It's just sort of it, it. It's just this weird thing where they're, it and 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 it's weird. Like at what stage? Like we know now that we're kind of in scandal investigation stage, that this this operative phrase quid pro quo is going to become a big thing. But where do they get in talking? Like how did they get on that phrase? during the thing yeah like they're already like in in defense mode while they're in like they're in the early stages of their of their scheme yeah it's It's sort of weird it's sort of like you say it enough times you start to believe it yourself and and notably actually when this first broke with the whistleblowers complaint it was republicans that were quick to say there was no quid pro quo here democrats keep saying there's a quid pro quo in fact democrats were saying the president used his office to pressure the president of Ukraine, whether or not there was a quid pro quo. And Republicans moved that goalpost to say where there wasn't a direct exchange. So from the beginning, this was part of their defense because they wanted to make it explicit. And, well, you know, now that you say that, though, it seems pretty and it didn't occur to me until you said that just now. It seems pretty clear to me that they went there immediately because in their first conversations with the president, he said Mm -hmm. there was no quid pro quo. And that's a conversation they've been having for months. Well, (laughs) it's also we know that Trump has about a 50 word vocabulary. So it's like as soon as he clings onto a defensive phrase, I mean, witch hunt, no collusion. You know, it's just it's a catch all for these people are out to get me. It's kind of like when he had that pool spray maybe a week or so ago. He said, I'm all about corruption. Like, I just want to, I'm just looking, I'm looking out for corruption, you know, I'm obsessed with corruption. And you said it, I think, about like 30 times in this one appearance. There's there's definitely this, there's definitely this thing that Trump has where, and I think you get this if you are a, a, a very powerful person, a very powerful business person, and a very powerful business person in a private company where there's no one else who, you know, in, in your company who can, it's not like you have shareholders or a board or something like that. That he has this thing, and we've all, when you think about it, we've all seen it many, many times, that he will grab onto a, something that is a, a denial, a, a kind of an up is, da- an, an up is down for what we all saw. Like when he's like, the beautiful call. Like you're like, dude, we heard that, you know, <laughs> we saw what you said. Like, and he's a beautiful call. We all agree it's a beautiful call. So he, he does have this thing of, if he says like black is white, he thinks it is very persuasive to just keep saying it over and over and over again. And that, that makes it white. Um, and that's kind of the universe that he, that yeah. he operates in. 
one line I want to kind of zero in on was, it was on page 13, so close to the end of Taylor's prepared testimony, in which he says on two separate occasions, uh, Volker and Sondland each re- related to Taylor, you know, when a businessman is making a deal, usually, you know, if something is owed to him, he wants that person to pay up before he, you know, you know, gives the deal or whatever. Josh, I know you were, you were kind of stuck on that line, too. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not a businessman at the scale of <laughs> Trump, obviously, but I have done this for a while. Yeah. And like, that's actually not, not, not something you ever do. Right. I mean, it, it, in, in, in legitimate contexts, right? I mean, if you're doing someone a favor, maybe, you know, you want them to do, but like, if you're making a deal, the deal is I will do X and you will do Y. You're not going to do something in advance of the deal. Right. Like that doesn't, it, it, it's, it's not quite like a mafia thing, but it's a lot closer to a mafia thing than, you know, it's, it's this, it, 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 it sounds much more like, um, you know, it's more like when a politician comes to you and wants something from you, you say, well, you know, I got that law I right. need passed. It, it's, it's like an, it's a, it, it's like a mob thing. Yeah. It's, it's not, that's not how thing about actual business it's really cash transactions that's what it's about if you owe me money you need to pay me the money right like it's not like we're going to do some deal or a lot of you know what is that and there's nothing in taylor's statement that suggests that language came from trump himself but it's a pretty trumpy kind of way to phrase it right and the fact that i think sondland said it first and then a few days later volker basically said the same thing to taylor well it's also kind of like you can sort of see where like sondland is a business but volker is like a kind of a think tank diplomat guy like there's no way he gets that right from i mean he may be a total sleazeball but that's not something i don't think that's something he's gonna get from his kind of life experience yeah. and thinking it's right. also just ridiculous on its face in any measure that they're trying to say well he's a businessman so that's why all of his dealings look like crime it's because <laughs> you don't understand it's like oh okay okay that's fine then <laughs> yeah interesting point on this actually i was watching sean hannity last night and he made a and he made a point to clip together every time the president has used the word favor as a defense of trump and it seems like there's an yeah, emerging the way he talks yeah kind of like yeah, there's an yeah, emerging yeah. defense that yeah this is just how the president works and in fact like you have this network of people that are saying no actually this is an explicit abuse of the office so it doesn't seem like this is really going to last right i mean and, but that's also kind of been a theme of trump defenses from the beginning it's like mm-hmm. he's a washington outsider he's breaking the system draining the swamp but he does things his way whether or not you like it it's just now the the way you like it happens to be the law. Right. So. And I mean, even early on, that was an excuse for why Trump was behaving kind of crazy. Like, oh, he's not a politician. He's not from this world. And so, I don't know, in some ways. Well, often it's more, it's more like explicit and damning than that, that they, that when, when he was asking people to drop investigations and firing James Comey, there's a sense that he, come on, like, you know, he didn't really know that wasn't what you could do he's used to like you know in a business if someone if if you know if someone is doing something wrong you fire them like that's obvious and it it does i'm here with my employees (laughs) (laughs) i know we have like a labor agreement and everything um uh uh, but but in 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 those cases it really came down to kind of like he's not used to like following the law. This is like the law is you know he's like raised by criminals. What can you expect of right. him, right? It's right. and and you can kind of see that coming out again now. Like 
Favor, he's used to, I mean, he was raised with extortion. What are you, what are you, what are you asking of him? Sort of. <laughs> yeah. Matt, I wanted to um, just kind of continue on with, with some of the specifics and details from Taylor's testimony. You wrote something yesterday that Taylor himself didn't get a readout of the call with Zelensky. Is that right? Right. Um, so the American public didn't get a readout, which is a little unusual itself. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, where two world leaders talk and there's no official record of it. The Ukrainians released one, the Americans did it. And those are generally, it's sort of like a press a release. It doesn't like a really, paragraph, very exactly. general. And, just, yeah. and that's to kind of, I don't know, make sure that you have your side represented so that the other you know, that foreign government isn't the, only, isn't the only word on the call, basically, right? It's a routine right. thing. Right. And so now we know from Taylor that not only did the public not get a readout, he didn't get the readout. The top diplomat working in Ukraine didn't know what happened in the second ever conversation between the president of Ukraine and the president of uh, the United States. And with that lack of information, he then goes to meet with Zelensky the next day, and he has to hear from Zelensky how the call went, as opposed to from uh, his own side. And then he goes to the front line of, you know, uh, the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine, still has no idea what happened on the call. Uh, uh, Ukrainian generals are thanking him for the security assistance that the U.S. is providing, which he knows we actually aren't providing. I was unclear on that. I remember that part. I was un and, and again, th this may not be a ambiguity in the text. This may be just I wasn't absorbing it. I kind of, when I read that, I thought it was a little more like, really happy this this stuff you said is coming mm -hmm. is coming that it wasn't just like a hey thanks that's awesome that right. there was a little more kind of like really like where is it kind of Desperation right. yeah yeah there. and that that's why he was like because he said he's really uncomfortable because possible he, he didn't have a, he didn't have any he didn't know himself mm -hmm. yeah and and so he goes through those few days until he talks to someone on the national security council basically relying on the Ukrainian interpretation of what happened. And it was only uh, a few days later that he hear hears from uh, Tim Morrison, uh, the Ukraine guy in the National Security Council, that uh, it could have gone better, I think was the quote. They <laughs> <laughs> there's so many great Which is like so a line little, out of Veep or something. Yeah, there's so many little, like, um, there, there's these little taglines in the thing. Yeah. And they're all these very painful understatements. Yeah, I think that was it. Like, it, it could have gone, yeah. gone better. I know the whole thing is sort of has a cinematic flair to it, right? I mean, he Bill Taylor is a, a good writer, I guess, you know, when you have decades of experience kind of memorializing conversations and things. But I think, Kate, like you had mentioned, sort of the clear-cut, straightforward writing style sort of lends a bit of credibility to it, too. Yeah, I mean, and since, you know, Matt just mentioned him, we also have a new character in the narrative now. This is, I think, the first we've heard of Tim Morrison, or at least in any meaningful way, who was kind of the bridge between Sondland and Taylor for that first uh, conversation Sondland had with Yermak, where he made the quid pro quo pretty clear. And and for li listeners to be clear, he replaces Fiona Hill, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's the that's who he is. So he re literally replaces her when right. she leaves. Like the top like, Russia expert, uh, Eastern Europe on the National Security Council. Right. And I think she left like a week before the call. So like mid-July, so something, something right. like that. And I don't know if he was like her deputy before that. So I don't know how much he sort of was like in the loop earlier or he kind of was coming into this. Um, yeah. But there's a lot. This is this is what comes to my mind through so much of this is that you clearly have a few people who are totally on board and gung ho, and Sunland's part of that, and Giuliani's part of that, and Volker seems kind of part of that, and then you have a lot of people who are kind of, you know, it's awkward. They don't like it. Blah 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 blah. But they're not 
doing anything about it. They're not going to the press. I mean, we know that because we didn't hear about it, right? Um, they're not going to the press. They're not filing whistleblower complaints. There are some people who, who are quitting around this time. And maybe they quit, but they quit and didn't say anything. And quit and didn't say anything is largely that's to solve your own co- conscience, basically. Um, so you have that, 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 that Morrison quote via Taylor who's like... And this is the big call, you know, the July 25th call could right. have gone better. So clearly he's like, dude, it was a fucking disaster, yeah. right? But again, you didn't do anything. Yeah. Like you were still what do you pushing think, the train forward. What do you think is behind that? I mean, is that just, you know, there's inertia when you're in these kinds of roles where it's like, you know, I'm just kind of following the chain of command kind of thing or, you know. <sighs> I think it's different for different people. I think um, in someone like Taylor's case... You are there to represent the U.S. government. You're not there to you to represent a represent yourself or even like what you think the U.S. government should be doing, even beyond kind of policy decisions. So that and and you're a career foreign. So like that's a that's a that's a tough situation um, for people on the National Security Council. I, I suspect part of it is you're you're working for a crook. So I don't think this is the only time that things like completely crazy things or completely illegal things are happening. Um, and also with, with Taylor, important to note that he came in to fill the shoes of uh, Marie Yovanovitch, the fired Ukrainian ambassador or U- U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who had been the target of a smear campaign by Rudy Giuliani and Joe DeGeneva and other people. And he spoke to her on the way in. So he came into this job knowing that there was an, an outside channel of political pressure acting on Trump's behalf. See, that was a case where, like, there were certain areas where he has a kind of a deadpan self-presentation. Like, there's even in that part, when, uh, David, when you talk about, you know, the kind of it's like he's a businessman and stuff, that he portrays his own response. If that doesn't make any sense, he doesn't. You know, the Ukrainians don't owe him anything. Well, it's not that it doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense. It's just not okay. It's you know what I'm mean? saying. So, so there's there's a there's a certain I don't want to say naivete that he presents himself with, but but a certain level of innocence uh, in his self presentation, and in that that Ivanovich part is really a key example of that because he saw what happened to her. He debriefed her. And she doesn't seem like she's terribly reticent in those kind of in in those kind of settings, so it it has to be the case. And he even said he went to Pompeo, said like, mm-hmm. "Dude, I'm not dealing with that bullshit. Like, you have to back me." So it seems clear, you know, because he kind of presents himself. I came in, everything at first seemed okay, then it kind of got weird. Seems pretty clear. He knew he knew a lot more what was what was happening. And I don't mean this in the sense that he's being dishonest it's just a it's a way he kind of inflects Mm -hmm. his version of the story yeah i mean and some of it at this point by the time that you're testifying before committees and you know that one way or another what you say is going to get out there has to be some kind of decision of what character am i in this narrative and you get a shot to portray yourself as such and he chose the steadfast you know career diplomat who's shocked military experience who is just you know a patriot through and through who saw you know weird things happening increasingly and was just really wrapped up in this even though he didn't like it you know that's a much easier role to play than say i don't know he wanted 
this job. He wanted to get back into it. He wanted to have a prominent role with a country that's, you know, on this path of rapid transformation. You know, it's it's a lot easier to cloak it as this was my public service and I was a lone voice of reason than I'm a very ambitious person and I wanted right. this job despite any suspect things or the other motivations. It's a good point. It's, it, it, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, and also this, what we're going off of is his opening statement. That's one, you know, I think it took about 40 minutes to read, according to reports, and that's 40 minutes among, you know, 10, 12 plus hours of testimony. Mm -hmm. So you're right. It's a good point in that this is the chance you get to sort of frame your role, your character, that sort of thing, because it's the most likely thing to actually leak out to reporters and, and kind of, you know, an original source document that we'll see. Yeah, and I, I would say, I mean, I basically by his that presentation in its in its broad outlines and i mean i think in terms of you know he's been ambassador to ukraine before and this is sort of all the responsibilities of ambassador without actually the title because mm -hmm. you know they're going to confirm and he's sort of interim and all that kind of stuff so i basically buy his overall presentation i mean he's in his i think very early 70s well, i mean he was born he, well, I think he graduated from West Point in 1969. I was born in 69. I'm 50. Do the math. Um, it's just that I think there's there's more canniness on his part that he kind of glossed over. I think he knew what he was getting into. There was He knew there was a lot of shit already going on. Right. And he, you know, went into it kind of, you know, making his terms to Pompeo. Um, just that he, you know probably a little less surprised when this stuff happened because yeah. it clearly it was already happening with it already led to the other you know his predecessor getting bounced well that's what i don't get then why do it he did it before you know it's not like this is like his one bite at the apple to be this like high positioned see that's the part that i i basically buy his argument kind that of he like, didn't think it was so bad no i that that he really cares about ukraine that they needed an ambassador um, I'm sure there's some level of get back, you know, get back into the game. But I think he sees this as a as a critical time for the country. He's qualified. He's been, you know, he's been ambassador. So I I buy that he felt like he was kind of stepping into the breach. And one notable uh, thing about this, I think, um, as soon as his testimony came out. The administration, the White House came out and said, this is an unelected bureaucrat who's going as the president. And this is the Trump administration's choice to replace the person that they ousted prematurely. So he's been in the job for five months. And talking about creating a character, it seems like a much heavier lift to paint him as this corrupt unelected bureaucrat who wanted to uh, pursue his own interests in Ukraine right. than it is to the actual case of this was a guy, a career Ukraine guy who was asked to fill the hole that the administration created. Right. And <laughs> well, and also, I mean, if you look, if you read his bio, I buy that he's not a partisan, mm -hmm. but he's probably pretty clearly more of a Republican than yeah, a Democrat. He, I mean, he mentions a, a, a long, like a senior Republican aide who was a mentor who was to him. A, who was a mentor. I think he's talking about a member of Congress there, but not right. totally clear. A mentor. He's appointed ambassador in a Republican administration. He notes that during the Obama administration, he signed some public letter saying that they were making a mistake, not giving lethal aid. And, you know, there were a lot of Democrats who believed that too. And I, and I think they were probably right. So that's not, it, it's just that he's pretty clearly not like a Democrat or someone coming from a kind of a 
position on the left or or or, or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, so well, and the other you know the other thing, there's this guy. Uh, uh, can't, I can't remember his first name, so I won't say it, but he's, uh, I follow him on Twitter. And, and he made the point that it just shows the sort of the, uh, the, the haplessness and uh, just not very good at committing crimes, these guys are, that they get rid of this one woman and they put in charge a career civil servant and make him like a witness to everything. So like that that wasn't smart, and clearly it's turned out not to be smart. I mean, it would have. They've done so many other crazy things. I'm sure they could have gotten away with like making Gorka, like Wait, ambassador uh, or something, <laughs> right. just to at least have someone who would who would you know cover for them. Fill the gap. Yeah. Someone who doesn't habitually take contemporary <laughs> notes with the things right. that happen yeah, around yeah, him. Yeah, I you know I said I said this in a tweet yesterday. One thing that is coming out of this is that uh, you know career. Uh, career bureaucrats in the national security and diplomatic space write very well. Mm-hmm. This is like this is actually like really good expository writing. <laughs> like and 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 the other thing I'm referencing is the is the whistleblower complaint itself. Yeah. It's kind of strong, clear, uh, you know, concise, clear writing with some verve. It's it's you know feel proud of our <laughs> feel <laughs> proud of our of our national security bureaucracy. Yeah. All right, maybe we can leave it there, and we will. Um you know, pick this up next week where we're awaiting Trump's comments. He's talking, I guess, about Syria, but hopefully he'll answer some questions. I think your hopes will probably, well, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say he'll say some, say some crazy stuff. So I, I'm well, sure, I'm there's sure, probably yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, before we go, I want to touch on one other story that we had talked about last week. But before that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So last week we were talking about Tulsi Gabbard's performance in the debate, kind of what her deal is, um, and really the whole kind of strange situation that is her candidacy has taken another strange turn. So Kate, fill us in on what's been going on in that week since we last talked about Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, well, over the weekend, um, a fight between Gabbard and Hillary Clinton kind of exploded because Clinton said something on a podcast um, that... She didn't name Tulsi, but she said she and there aren't that many women running and said that she's clearly a, a Russian asset who's being groomed for um, a, an independent bid to siphon off votes from the ultimate Democratic candidate. And then uh, Tulsi fired back with, you know, everything she had. She kept her supporters waiting at a rally for an hour while she did a live spot on Tucker Carlson to address the claim. She was in like a parking garage or a It was like an extremely <laughs> dimly lit parking lot. It looked very hostage video-y, but you know, there that happens. She puts out, um, you know, a, a highly produced video. She calls Clinton, um, like a queen warmongers. Exactly. <laughs> that's yeah. it. Yeah. Incarnation of corruption, all this kind of stuff. Um, meanwhile, Clinton has, after the first thing, did not really get in the game too much. Her spokesperson did say, um, if the nesting doll fits, which I think is hilarious. But 
So anyway, and Gabbard has still done it, is still putting out videos, is still, you know, is now demanding that Clinton step down from her throne. What that throne is, is not quite clear. She doesn't really have a job. Wasn't the first thing that she demanded she enter the race? Oh, yeah. Enter it herself. Let's let's do this mano y mano. In that first statement, she basically said kind of like, or, or I think said pretty directly, all these other candidates are just like kind of stalking horses for you and you know it's me and you and mm-hmm. so let's just let's just get it out there and you get in the race and finally the Tulsi Hillary battle will be joined <laughs> and you're sort of like dude what like right. you're, you're freaking insane so I just kind of you know went back and did a little overview of her because as we talked about I mean she's absolutely bizarre and a very strange candidate and I don't think anyone would ever guess is a Democrat from Hawaii, if you just saw her positions on things, you know, but it just, all of it is so odd. It's still odd. Her refusal to, you know, call the Syrian genocide a genocide, her weird standing by um, al-Assad for who knows why, you know, and it's, she kind of is in the boat of limiting defense spending, ending the endless wars, which are more, democratic things but at the same time you know she made herself a big critic during way back during the obama administration right away she met with trump extremely soon after his election was one of the first lawmakers to do so and really touted that so the the, i just have no idea what coalition she's going after you know because it's like she has some people like steve bannon being like oh wow what a talent and she has like david duke's endorsement and all these kind of russian bots you know, elevating her, writing about her all the time in RT, you know, so it's, I know a lot of 2020 candidates condemned Clinton for saying something like that without a substantive body of proof. But I don't think the dynamic that she pointed out doesn't deserve being pointed out because it's very strange and her candidacy is being really echoed around these Russian propaganda-y places, you know, and why? She said she wouldn't run in a third party bid, but there's 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 also we talked about this last week that there there is this kind of trolling gaslighting thing with her. Um, I mean, some of it even just like, you know, going on Tucker Carlson. I mean, you know, in the sort of the tribal whatever of Democrats and Republicans, that's pretty that's pretty tough for a lot of people, a lot of Democrats to take. But there's things, one thing I remember is right after the Mueller report came out, she went up with one of those videos, those kind of like tight face shot, Mm -hmm. highly produced videos saying, okay, I guess we all admit now, no collusion, no obstruction, let's move on. This was lame. And, you know, at a certain level, Democrats were just disappointed by what they found in the report. Um, Some of that is just let's call it what it is, but A, it didn't quite say those things, A. Um, that doesn't mean the whole thing was nonsense. And B, kind of like, like okay, maybe you're kind of a critic of the investigation, but that's what I mean, that sort of gaslighting thing. Like, who's your constituency here? Like, what are you, what are you, what is your game? Because clearly, um, you, you know, you can be sort of like, and there were a lot, certainly a lot of people on the kind of DSA left that had this argument that, look, this Mueller thing is, maybe it's a way to sort of distract from why Hillary ran. It's a way kind of like, okay, let's make politics about Mueller and Russia and not get into Medicare for all and the, and the ways that you need, you know, deep change in the Democratic Party. 
you know, that's that's not my thing, but okay. That's that's I, I get that. That's sort of a that's sort of a conversation within the Democratic Party. But what she said was just just kind of trolling and 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 um beyond trolling, you have the sense of like what is like you were saying, Kate, like what is your game? Like where are you coming from here? What is your constituency supposed to be? Because it doesn't add up. And that's the thing, to me at least, that is beyond just kind of I don't like her and I don't like her positions. You have this sense, which is what gaslighting is supposed to be. You're kind of bewildered. You're like, I don't know what you're up to. And that's mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. If the, uh, the one thing that I think carries over from 2016 to 2020 with Gabbard is there is a suspicion of the Democratic Party organization itself. Um, and I think she may see her market as similar to Trump's market in 2016 among Republicans, among people who support certain Democratic policy positions or ideals, uh, non-interventionism or things like that, but don't trust the party to carry them out. And whatever, however much uh, sort of... Uh, uh, authority or trustworthiness she has to be an actual change maker on those fronts is definitely in doubt. But as far as the market for her politics, she's actually uh, much more extreme than Sanders in this regard, whereas Sanders is running within the Democratic Party just on, on left positions. Gabbard is sort of running against the party itself. Um, and I think, and that's frankly why it was a little confusing that Hillary Clinton went after her, because if there's one thing that Gabbard is used to, it's to responding to charges of being a Russian plant, basically. She did that the entire Mueller investigation. And so for Clinton to come out and basically give her this badge of being hated by Hillary Clinton, I think uh, did her a little bit of a favor. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And I think just, you know, Hillary Clinton is basically retired, whatever. She can say whatever she wants. I agree with you that in the context of present democratic politics, it didn't do anybody any favors. Um, I, with with that constituency, I think what we... There is that constituency. It's pretty small. There's certainly a peace constituency in the Democratic Party. It doesn't tend to be a pro-Assad, right. pro-genocide <laughs> constituency too. Right, right. right? Um, I think we found out that a lot of those, a lot of that sort of sliver constituency in the Democratic Party that was very focused on the alleged corruption of the Democratic Party happened to also have like very right wing views on a lot of things. A lot of those people ended up being people who were actually working for Trump mm. <laughs> or have su- have subsequently gone on and, and, and joined like white nationalist organizations. <laughs> so that that constituency is a is a is a is a a an extremely a very small constituency and a a, a fairly compromised constituency i think we've seen and in democrats years. maybe basically <laughs> yeah 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 all right let's leave it at that okay all right uh remember grady's cold brew ice coffee um you know we uh uh you, you need to remember a that grady's makes the uh, josh marshall podcast possible and also that it's just awesome to drink so if you're ready to give it a try get 20 percent off your first order at grady's with promo code tpm that's grady's with promo code tpm all right cool. thanks all right. everybody See you next week